Hey listeners, welcome back and happy Tuesday. I hope you are well. So today I want you to pay extra attention to what I am going to talk about. And I promise you will learn a lot along the way. You are in fact in for a treat. We decided to bring in multiple voices and experts to help inform this particular episode. Why is it so unique, you may ask? Well, first, we are diving back. We are reviewing parts of American history, parts that you may not be aware of because we all know only certain stories get told and how they are remembered and taught has been pretty much predicated on who carries the mic. Well, for a change, I have the mic today and I want to delve into issues and topics that are seldom covered in mainstream media. Let me preface all of this by saying it's okay. It's okay to be caught off guard by the narrative in this episode and it's okay to feel embarrassed or even guilty. Believe you me, most of this was news to me. Honestly, it doesn't matter how little we know. What matters is how open we are to learning new things, to challenging ourselves, to grow intellectually. And this is exactly what we are doing with this particular episode. Our understanding of the world and of our past is pretty much molded by the social ecosystems we inhabit and also at a more granular level by the textbooks we read as students or we are reading as students. So today we are going to set aside all those preconceived notions, all those ideas and dig deep into something extremely important. So let the learning begin. Most of us know that within the context of U.S. immigration, current discourse targets non-white laborers who are coming into quote-unquote steel jobs from citizens of this country, a country that is commonly envisioned to be white and male. Immigrants have been vilified and accused of taking jobs and burdening the economy when in reality they are filling in key labor needs and contributing largely to its successes. As you probably realize, this perspective is not just toxic, perpetuating if not inciting more xenophobia and xenophobic policies and we have seen this in the last four years. Further, it is totally inaccurate as a historical matter and that's what we are going to talk about today. The patterns and practices of immigration for labor isn't a 21st century novelty. In the U.S., we have always depended on immigration as a way to support our labor needs, many of which white Americans refused to fill because they were considered menial and too low in wage. And that's a fact. Look around and you'll find many examples of how immigrants were and are seen as cheap labor, people who are hardworking and need little to no incentives to make the move. So we are going to share some of these stories and pieces of history. But remember, they only skim the surface. You'll hear about Chinese laborers and the Transcontinental Railroad, Mexican laborers and the Bracero program and Filipino nurses and the Exchange Visitors program. 
And you must have noticed the term essential workers. We hear it a lot. It has been popularized because of COVID. Immigrants have long served this role without recognition nor the protection that they deserve. I am so excited to share the mic with these eclipsed voices and bring them into public consciousness. So here's a history lesson for you. Chinese laborers formed a significant portion of the labor force that built the first transcontinental railroad, which grew into what is now the Pacific Railroad covering 23 states west of Chicago and New Orleans. A series of events contributed to the influx of Chinese immigration to the U.S., including domestic pressures and international incentives. The mid-1800s was a turbulent time for China. You had the Opium Wars with the British, the Taipei Rebellion, and overall political and social dissonance. Imagine all this unrest in China but in the U.S., you have the discovery of gold in Sutter's Mill in 1848, which romanticized the West as a place of riches and attracted many. Later in 1863, the Central Pacific Railroad Company began its transcontinental railroad project. And within just two years, their labor force grew to about 20,000 workers and 80% of them were Chinese immigrants. Invention of steamships made travel easier and companies adopted a credit ticket system. So under this system, they covered workers' passage if they agreed to work for the company and pay back the costs with interest. So basically, companies were earning interest on workers' passage to the U.S. How sad is that? By 1870, there were 63,000 Chinese in America and 77% of them lived in California. Many of these folks were recruited under the false promise of high wages and good working conditions. Instead, they were met with discrimination and unequal treatment. Chinese workers earned only two-thirds of what their white workers made and did not receive food nor lodging like their counterparts. They were also assigned to the most dangerous jobs, such as handling dynamite. The saying, a Chinaman's chance, draws from this particular history, in which Chinese workers were forced to descend into mountain crevices and light dynamite so the opening could be widened for construction. Many of them had a Chinaman's chance of surviving because escaping the explosion was slim to none. Despite this, white workers saw Chinese laborers as a threat and by the late 1800s, the quote-unquote problem of Chinese immigration became a big issue. This led to the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, America's first race-based immigration law that explicitly targeted Chinese laborers. It's so sad to think that the transcontinental railroad, which basically revolutionized the U.S. economy and transportation system, uprooted so many lives under falsehoods of prosperity. 
Paradoxically, the labor demand was one generated by the U.S., and yet U.S. rejected and discriminated against these immigrants when too many of them came over. One organization that is bringing to light this hypocrisy and reframing our education around immigration history is the Immigrant History Initiative. They provided much of the factual content disclosed earlier and are here to further explain the importance of this narrative. Take a listen. Immigrant History Initiative. So, where to begin? (laughs) Why don't we start with our mission? That's a good point. I mean, it really is about reorienting history and filling in the blank spaces. Our textbooks so rarely talk about the struggles, oppression, and achievements of immigrants in America, especially immigrants of color. But immigrants are actually critical to the identity of this country. Yeah, you know, I think that's exactly right. Immigrants often exist in this weird in-between space where our bodies are used for labor, but as individuals, as human beings, we're mocked, we're discriminated against, we're often even condemned because the legal system has labeled us as foreigners and illegals. Exactly. And if I had to describe what we do in one sentence, I guess I would say that IHI challenges the way people think about migration and creates resources to educate the public on the histories of immigrant communities in America. Ultimately, we want people to understand and see that immigrant history is U.S. history. But let's maybe go back briefly to the beginning. How did we meet and start IHI? Well, you and I met in law school, and we actually, I think, met on the first day of orientation. And then that first semester, we ended up in all of the same classes, so we got really close. And then fast forward to 2016, the day after the election, we were both really painfully surprised, as I think a lot of other people across the country were, by the results. And in addition to being shocked that a lot of Asian American communities turned out for Trump, we also saw xenophobic rhetoric reach unprecedented levels of public acceptance. You know, of course, this is really nothing new when you look at the history of the United States and even how immigration began to be regulated. But it didn't really seem like a lot of people knew that, and it certainly wasn't taught in schools or talked about with our families. So you and I felt that there was a gap we needed to fill to show that this history matters, especially for those of us who are here because of that history, and it continues to have serious consequences today including for understanding why immigration is such a racialized question. And our legal education also really played into why we built IHI. I went to law school because I thought it would teach me how to create social change. Instead, law school taught me that legal remedies are actually really inefficient in creating social change. 99% of the time, Being a lawyer is about working within established systems and familiar narratives instead of fighting to dismantle these systems. And you can see the patterns repeat themselves over centuries. Law justified Chinese exclusion. Law justified Japanese internment. Too often, law is about protecting the powerful and maintaining the status quo. And even when law speaks in colorblind language, 
it's often used to uphold structures of white supremacy. So when we started IHI, I was pretty desperately looking for another way to more fundamentally shift our society towards a more just world. And I found one path to do this through IHI, by transforming how immigration and race are taught in schools and talked about in our communities, we can start to push back against the forces of racism and xenophobia at the grassroots level. Because the fact is that there's just no such thing as a neutral education. Colorblind education only teaches us that the status quo, that everything that is going on around us right now is normal and just how things should be. We need to break out of that mindset if we want to create change. So at IHI, we're working to build a different path. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I remember in 2016, after the election, you know, you and I really just wanted to do something that could make even the tiniest bit of difference in how people thought about immigration, about race, about justice. And honestly, for Asian Americans like us, how we think about ourselves. I came to the U.S. when I was nine years old, so I'm an immigrant. And growing up, I only saw one narrative of European migration at Ellis Island, and I never saw Asian immigrants as part of that story or really any story. It was only after learning some of the history in college and law school that I realized how much we and other immigrants of color shaped U.S. history. Honestly, it really shouldn't have taken me that long to learn the fundamental truth. I was 22 when I learned about Angel Island, the West Coast immigration station where most Asian immigrants entered the U.S. in the early 1900s. And I learned this in a book that I got for Christmas, not even any class. I was 24 when I learned that Wong Kim Ark fought against the racist Chinese Exclusion Act to establish birthright citizenship. Yes, a lot of this happened hundreds of years ago, but understanding the violence that has been levied against immigrants and how that continues in a new form today is actually critical to how we think about and understand ourselves. For me, um, as a Chinese-American woman, understanding the civil rights movement and understanding how solidarity with African-American activists was crucial to forging Asian-American identity, you know, those are really essential pieces of learning that helps me unpack, for example, the model minority myth and why that myth is so problematic and how it continues to render Asian Americans invisible today. You and I started IHI because we didn't want people to only access this knowledge or reach this understanding in college or graduate school. So in 2017, we started teaching an Asian American history course in Connecticut to young kids. And the reaction to the classes that we taught from both the students and their parents showed us that there was a real need. We grew into a nonprofit to not only teach this course, but also to provide more resources for educators and the general public. Our working theory at the Immigrant History Initiative is that for people of color, for immigrants, seeing yourself in this history changes how you see your own power and agency. As an immigrant, what really bothers me is that the use of immigration to recruit cheap labor is a pattern we see over and over again, a broken record that is equally of the past and present. Yet at the forefront of public consciousness isn't this truth, but rather the false notion that immigrants are 
taking away jobs. To me, honestly, it's a display of stubborn nationalism that further escalates when there is any sort of economic instability. When that happens, the U.S. seeks a scapegoat and immigrants are as an easy target, boogeymen of sorts. Now, hypocritically, when cash is flowing and economy is booming, the U.S. looks to its neighbors to fill the gap. Take, for instance, the Bracero program. In the 1940s, many U.S. citizens joined the army or entered industrial jobs, so the U.S. actively sought out Mexican laborers for low-wage farm jobs that were left unfilled. The Bracero program, which began in 1942 and lasted two decades until 1964, was a series of U.S.-Mexico agreements to facilitate the migration of over 4 million short-term Mexican contract laborers into and out of the U.S. These workers were invaluable in sustaining Southwest agricultural production during the war and beyond. Under their U.S. employment, they were tied to agricultural work without enforced labor protections. No surprises there, right? They were often overworked and underpaid with delayed payments and inadequate housing and food. Because of the nature of the Bracero program and that it vested unequal power in the hands of the employers, immigration violations were not uncommon. Farmers who hired Bracero laborers were not supposed to use them as strike breakers, but many broke this rule. Others coerced their workers to overstay their contracts. Ultimately, Mexican laborers were seen as disposable. They filled labor concerns without becoming a socioeconomic concern for their U.S. employers or the U.S. government. This model of meeting labor shortages has not gone away. We know that, right? Guest worker programs still exist in the U.S. and specifically for temporary agricultural work under the H-2A program. The Bracero program only set the precedent for this kind of use of immigration to meet labor demands. Look, I know it's a lot to take in and absorb, but we are not done yet. So take a deep breath and let's move on to another extremely important topic. You've heard a bit about Chinese laborers and the Transcontinental Railroad, also about the Bracero program and how it brought in Mexican migrant workers. Now I want to talk about Filipino nurses and why they have such a strong presence in the healthcare field and what events of the past led to this distribution. And it's extremely important to talk about it right now since we are in the midst of a deadly pandemic. So let's get started. The first massive wave of Filipino nurses took place right after World War II a period during which the U.S. suffered from a severe shortage of nurses. Under the Exchange Visitors Program, which was created in 1948 to bring people from other countries to work and study American culture, many Filipino nurses were granted visitor status and permission to migrate to the U.S. The Exchange Visitor Program actually wasn't intended for Filipino nurses or even for people of their native country, rather... 
surprise, surprise, it was used as a political democratizing tactic to fight Soviet propaganda during the Cold War. Now you must be wondering, how would there so many trained English-speaking Filipino nurses to begin with? Well, we had wondered the same. Luckily, we found an expert, Professor Catherine Siniza Choi, who is an ethnic studies professor at UC Berkeley. She has carried out extensive research on nursing and migration in Filipino-American history because she too was struck by this question. Why are there so many Filipino nurses in the U.S.? Let's listen to what she has to say. It is estimated that over 150,000 Filipino nurses have immigrated to the U.S. since 1960. Today, it is commonplace to be cared for at the bedside by a Filipino immigrant nurse. The predominance of Filipino nurses was catalyzed by three big changes in the United States during the 1960s. First, the establishment of Medicare and Medicaid resulted in an increased need for nurses, while in a second major change, the women's and civil rights movements resulted in new job opportunities for American women. At around the same time, a more equitable immigration law called the Hart-Seller Act was passed due to the increasing demand for nursing services, which became difficult to fill domestically, American hospital recruiters looked abroad. Meanwhile, in the Philippines, high rates of domestic unemployment and political instability pushed Filipino nurses to emigrate overseas. The devaluation of the Philippine peso against the US dollar made the United States a highly attractive destination. By the early 1970s, a Filipino nurse in the Philippines needed to work 12 years to earn what she could make in the United States in one year. Some Philippine government officials initially criticized Filipino immigrant nurses for abandoning their home country. But in the early 1970s, after observing the demand for Filipino nurses in the United States, then-President Ferdinand Marcos shifted the country's development towards a labor export economy. The Philippine government began aggressively promoting the outmigration of Filipino nurses and other workers, eventually touting them as the new national heroes for the billions of dollars they remit annually in foreign currency. There was another more historic reason why the Philippines specifically became the leading exporter of professional nurses to the United States. U.S. colonization of the Philippines from 1898 to 1946 had led to the creation of Americanized professional nursing training in the archipelago. In the early 20th century, American nurses trained Filipino students in courses such as practical nursing, the use of pharmaceuticals, and bacteriology. Philippine nursing licensure examinations included testing in the English language, as well as in nursing-related subjects. Although intended to prepare Filipinos for Philippine self-government, these U.S. colonial policies inadvertently prepared Filipino nurses to work in the United States. But change and influence don't move in just one direction. Just as American nurses indelibly influenced Philippine nursing, so too have Filipino nurses 
change the practice of healthcare in the United States. Let's consider today, 2020. Many of you have probably noticed, or maybe not, but immigrants as a whole are disproportionately represented in healthcare. They make up nearly 29% of all U.S. physicians, 22% of nursing assistants, and 38% of home health aides. These immigrant workers, including the Filipino nurses that make up 28% of immigrant nurses, are currently on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. Over 30% of the 205 nurses who have died from COVID-19 in the U.S. are Filipino-American, although the group makes up just 4% of the nursing workforce. These numbers are so uneven. Again, over 30% of the Filipino nurses who have died from COVID-19 are Filipino-American, but they make up just 4% of the nursing workforce. Supporting these frontline workers should go without saying. However, allocating our resources so that those disproportionately impacted have visibility and care is where we are failing short. If you want to help, I recommend checking out the Philippine Nurses Association of America, or PNAA. They have created a COVID-19 task force and a Heal Our Nurses fundraising campaign to aid in critical, intermediate, and long-term interventions and programs that will benefit nurses and the overall healthcare system. As you heard from Julian Cathy at Immigrant History Initiative and Professor Siniza Choi, this diasporic existence, which has historically rendered immigrants as bodies for labor, but not as individuals with full rights, is not simply a vestige of the past. Sure, the U.S. government and its policies are part of this problem, but the implications are far-reaching. Powerful corporations benefit from such exploitation. Education systems gloss over the historical nuances. And people fall to consider the why because it is unsettling. That's the truth. That is the reality. Thus, discrimination manifests structurally and socially in how we treat and talk about undocumented and even documented immigrants And we see that only recently the discourse has shifted to acknowledging the essential role that immigrants play in the labor force because of COVID. So my question is, why has it taken a pandemic to recognize these communities and their contributions? Immigrants have long played an essential role in healthcare, agricultural and the service industries to name a few. They have helped and continue to sustain the U.S. economy. Let us not forget the important roles they play as well as the complicated history that brought these groups here in the first place. So guys, before I wrap up, I want to thank a few people. Like the diverse faces that make up this country, I am so appreciative of many voices that went into this episode. Special shout out to Julia and Kathy from Immigrant History Initiative for sharing their curriculum and initiating this wonderful episode. 
I am in awe of the kind of work they are doing. If you want to learn more about what they do and the programs they have written, their website is linked in the credits. And thank you to Professor Siniza Choi for opening pages to parts of history that have been overlooked. I am amazed by her dedication to educating her students and the public on Asian American history in this case for graciously sharing her research and knowledge on Filipino Americans and Filipino nurses. Check out her book Empire of Care if you want to learn more. And of course, Yudi Lu, our content writer. Yudi, whatever you do, you always bring magic to every episode that you work on. I honestly would be lost without you. It is the people like them who stir us to reconsider the histories of immigrants and to acknowledge how little we may know and how much we can learn from their narratives. This episode is just one piece of the pie. But take it and have a bite. Next time when you are confronted by rhetoric that targets immigrants and immigrant laborers, you'll have a few facts up your sleeves to stand up for these people who are as much part of this country as you. I am an immigrant and I am proud of it. Take care.